you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to treat this as best we can as a Bible class. So if you have a question or a comment you want to throw in, just do it. Um, I'll try to do my best to keep an eye on things. And um, welcome, Bars. Hello, Tinsley's. Uh, so feel free to uh, just hop on, send me a question or a comment, and I'll try to address it as best I can so it feels like a real Bible class. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 16 tonight. And after our uh, conversation with Blake Hemphill last week, uh, Blake immediately started thinking about what was happening with the Exodus and the passage that when we start going on lockdown, uh, and I knew it was going to be disruptive for really uh, the whole world, um, I, I started to think, is there a passage in Scripture where there was a real disruption for a long period of time that impacted God's people? And so I came to the story of um, Ahab and Jezebel and Elisha, and, and really, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, uh, was really a crisis of faith for God's people. And it was really a choice that they were going to have to make. Were they going to follow after their king and queen and the idol worship there? Or would they exclusively uh, worship the Lord? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 16. And if you can imagine, the uh, op if this were a movie, the opening scene would be a big rubble pile and people starting to clear the rubble and starting to stack up stones and trying to rebuild a dwelling that's been uh, completely demolished. And so uh, the city that they're rebuilding is called the city of Palms and it's beautiful. It's down by uh, the, it's, it's very tropical in the midst of uh, a very barren land and it was a show place in its day, and it was really considered a kind of a beautiful oasis that was down by the Dead Sea. Uh, but it was built to be an impenetrable fortress. But the only problem is it had been uh, penetrated and it had been destroyed. But when it was built, its inner and outer walls were 46 feet thick. It was just designed to be this just an incredible structure uh, to protect the inhabitants within the city. But 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34 says this, In Ahab's time, Hail of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. So uh, those of you that are kind of biblical uh, scholars or Bible school nuts, what's wrong with uh, Ahab sending out a guy named Hail to rebuild Jericho? What's wrong with that? Glad the red wines are here in the new houses. Welcome, Adolfonso and Carrie Smith. What's wrong with rebuilding Jericho? Come on. Well, if you guys remember, after the walls of Jericho come down with uh, Joshua, and remember they they blow the trumpet after they've circled for seven days, and you know the Lord uh, delivers them, and there's uh, Rahab the prostitute, and all the walls fall down except for her, 
of families. Everyone else perishes in that. And they end up, Joshua pronounces a curse upon the city of Jericho. And he's saying, as uh, Harriet said, Jericho was not to be rebuilt. And it was designed to be a memorial. If you remember when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River at flood stage, what was it that they grabbed out of uh, the river bottom? Do you guys remember? Each of the tribe were able to go in and grab something as a memorial. What was that? Apparently, it's just taken a little while, a little delay from for the comments to get off the satellite and come back down to me. But you guys remember, each tribe was asked to grab a stone out of the river bottom, little Lewis and Paula, and they stacked them up as a memorial so that when God's people came by and the the next generations, that's right, Alicia, the stones, uh, the, the the subsequent generations would come by and say, you know, mom and dad, what are those stones for? And they could tell the story about God delivering his people at flood stage and how he stopped the, the waters upstream so God's people could cross over. Well, Jericho was supposed to be this living memorial as well to remind people that this uh, idolatrous people that didn't follow the Lord had been delivered over to God's people and God's people had been faithful and entrusted into him. And he brought about this great victory. And so it was supposed to remind the people of why they were there. And so as Clint says, there were 12 stones that were brought up one for each tribe and that they were stacked there. And so that was the same thing. Uh, and so, uh, what, here's what ends up happening. It says he laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segem, in accordance with the word the Lord had spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So Joshua said, not only is there going to be a curse on Jericho, but anyone that ventures out and tries to rebuild this thing, it's going to cost him personally. And when you start messing with the foundation, your oldest uh, son, the, the child that would carry on the name and carry on the family blessing, uh, they're going to be struck down. And if you keep going and you set up the gates, your youngest will perish as well. And that's exactly what happens. Um, so I began asking the question, why? Why would you rebuild the walls of Jericho? And y'all are welcome to uh, to throw in uh, your two cents worth. But why would you choose to rebuild Jericho knowing that it had this curse? And I, I, I guess you could say that, um, well, um, it's a strategic place. It's down um, on the southern part of the Holy Lands. And right as you cross over the River Jordan, you'd see it'd be a great place for a fortress. And that's why the people put it there. So it could strategically say, hey, let's put a fortress there. And so that would make sense. Uh, and uh, someone also say, hey, all the building materials are on, on site. So it would be easy to just start rebuilding with what's already there. Uh, but you know, if you get to thinking about if you've got a badly damaged structure, it's much 
more difficult to try to repair something like that than it is to build from scratch. And so it would make more sense to build something, uh, you know, even a uh, hundred yards away or a couple hundred yards away and build it up and, and create something new. So there was definitely an agenda that was going on as to why they decided to rebuild Jericho. And that's what I want to get at um, today. So Amy Sievert said, hey, you know, this this curse has been around for a long time and no one's really tried it. Maybe it's an old wives tale. So they didn't take it serious. I, I think that's a distinct possibility. Um, and so we're going to see tonight that King Ahab definitely has an agenda and he's trying to go against what God has been telling the people and getting them and sway them in a new direction. So um, the, the only thing, way I can describe this as someone that grew up in Texas is this is why it's so inflammatory to the Lord. Can you imagine if someone said, you know what? Uh, there was a fort down in San Antonio, uh, uh, Alamo. Why don't we rebuild it? Because that's a great place. And we'll do like a army hangout or, uh, but no, you, there's no way you would do anything or rebuild something on the site because it's designed to be remembered and the sacrifices that were there. And so maybe they'll give us a, a little bit of insight on that. So why would we end up doing this? Um, well, the Lord intended that these ruins would be this perpetual reminder of what he's done and how he had given the land of Canaan to his people, but also to remind them of his grace and his goodness. Um, uh, and so let, let's continue reading in first Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. It says in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri became king in Israel. And he reigned in Samaria uh, over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those kings that had gone before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, which we'll see is the first king of Israel, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, and to anger him than all the kings of Israel before him. So um, before Israel broke up and it became a divided kingdom, you had the 12 tribes of Israel. And then after the death of Solomon, you have Rehoboam and you have Jeroboam. And Jeroboam takes the 10 tribes to the north, and you have two tribes in the south that bear the name of Judah. And so before this division, there was one capital and one place to worship, and that was in Jerusalem. So now you, you've got the northern 10 tribes. They're trying to uh, come up with their own identity, and they're trying to find their own places to worship. And they're saying, we don't need to go down to Jerusalem. We don't need to be a part of Judah. And so they're trying to establish themselves up to the north. So uh, they no longer were together. And so they had to serve as a separate entity. 
and it, it's almost like a household uh, that goes through a divorce and you now form two households. And so you have to replicate everything uh, in, into two. So if Israel was going to stand on its own apart from Judah, it needed a capital. And King Ahab had land that his father Omri had purchased uh, on the highest hill in the area uh, for two talents of silver, which is just nothing. And he had begun the initial uh, plans of putting together and building a massive capital there in Samaria. And so the name Samaria was based off of the family that he bought the land from. Uh, so they're trying to build uh, a big palace like Solomon had and also trying to build a temple. But the only problem with the temple that they're building, unlike the one that Solomon uh, took the plans and the materials from, from David, uh, they're building one for Baal, for Baal worship. And you're like, really? Are you sure? Yeah, that's what it tells them. So worshiping other gods, it, it didn't originate with Ahab. Uh, Jeroboam had tried kind of a syncristic uh, worship uh, in, in practices. And what he was trying to do is that, yeah, we can still worship um, Jehovah, but why don't we add in some local flavor? Uh, let's pull in some of the gods from some of the locals that we ran out. And there were still some that were living in the area. And so that's what they tried to do, kind of doing a all of the above approach. And so what Jeroboam did was kind of interesting is he said in Dan and Bethel, which is the northernmost town and the southernmost town, he said, let's put together golden calves that represent these other gods. Uh, but we'll have Jehovah use these as footstools to show his dominance. And so the Lord's feet were symbolically, uh, you could imagine that he's standing on the backs of these two golden calves. The only problem is you couldn't see Jehovah. All you saw was the calves. And so this was kind of the legacy that started up with Jeroboam, the first king over Israel in the divided kingdom. So from what we read uh, earlier, uh, whatever Ahab considered it trivial to commit the sins of, of Jeroboam, he's like, where Jeroboam left off, I'm, I'm just going to pick up and just run. The, the stuff that he tried to get away with God, hey, I'm going to blow right through that stop line. I'm, I'm just going to keep on going. And so that's what he decides to do. And so for the first time, this evil king uh, of Israel sought to bring Baal worship kind of out of the shadows, so to speak, and to make it public. Okay, we've been doing this for years on the on the sly. Let's now bring it forward, and we're going to officially become a pagan nation. We're officially going to make this our, our national religion. So that's what they were trying to do. And so uh, you start asking questions. How in the world would you make this happen? So the United States is known as a Christian nation. What would be some steps that people would have to take right now to make it no longer the dominant faith of, of the United States? What, what would be some steps that would have to be put in place or, or some things that would have to happen for it to be not quite so shocking uh, for us to be able to do that? What are some steps that you would see if we were gonna go from being a nation found on Christian principles 
to suddenly being a completely pagan nation uh, following uh, a secular way of doing things. What would be some things that are here? Welcome John and Talia and welcome Donna Elliott and the Baileys and the Connors. Okay, Jim Nord says government control. Uh, the government would go in and be able to dictate some of those things. So it would be a, a top-down approach and, and maybe by force. I, I think that's a, a, a great idea. What are some other ideas that people would have to do? Lots of money to influence. That's great. Uh, make it uh, illegal is what Sandra said. So no freedom of religion. Uh, Wilmer said uh, just kind of a groundswell of other religions growing. So it goes from being uh, only worshiping one God to worshiping multiple, and then those kind of grow in favor. So Alicia says, like the government rules to separate church and state, uh, so you can't pray in school anymore. I think that's a great point. Uh, Jill, my wife, showed me something on Facebook about uh, these parents that are having to uh, homeschool their kids and they're getting them out of public schools so suddenly there's prayer and there's uh, corporal punishment in uh, back in school now that they're at the house. Uh, Sheila says, uh, oh, Paula says, let's ban the Bible. Sheila said, uh, the president announcing we're no longer a Christian nation. Clint said, uh, tolerance, which isn't very tolerant, toward, uh, isn't very tolerant towards Christianity. All great comments. So let's look and see what happened to cause Israel to go down this path that it just seems uh, unimaginable to be able to do. I love what Harriet and Don say, just uh, apathy among Christians, allowing other religions to do that. You know, when uh, Adolf Hitler uh, came to power in the whole Third Reich, and he was asking the, the people to form um, to follow his radical plans for a new Aryan state. Hitler knew that he would need the support of the pulpits and the churches. And so he first went to, um, to a lot of, of the pastors and the religi religious leaders, and he asked them to kind of fall in line. And what's interesting is the, the preachers that wouldn't fall in line were either killed or they were extradited out of the country. So you begin to start forming a coalition of people that will allow you to, to do some of these things. And Jezebel, we learn in Scripture, starts rounding up the preachers as well. Um, she starts uh, rounding up all the prophets of God and executing them one by one. In fact, the, the faithful uh, members start grabbing prophets and sticking them in caves and feeding them and taking care of them. And uh, helping them practice social distancing uh, from the, the threats around them. Uh, then Ahab and Jeze uh, Jezebel, uh, once they had removed the, the prophets and people that are willing to speak for the Lord, they replaced them with their own people. And at, at first, they put them in the palace, these uh, uh, prophets of Baal, and you know, built residence there uh, in, in the palace. But then they decide, well, we're only going to convert the people here in the capital city. Let's start sending them out. And so these are almost re replacement priests that have been sent out among the people. And so the folks are like, what do we do? Because it is a top-down approach. And some of them have been worshiping Baal on the side, but this seems different now. 
that God is completely out of the picture. So we see that in 2 Kings chapter 10, uh, that Ahab and Jezebel had these Baal clergymen go all throughout the country. Well, if ever God's people were in need of a hero, it was during these days. And so enter a prophet of the Lord, and uh, it's a Tishbite from a little town named uh, Gilead. And his name was Elijah. So in, in contrast to the fine linen and uh, all the ornate things that the royals and the elites were wearing, here comes this almost John the Baptist-like character with his camel skin outfits uh, that's kind of with a, a leather sash. And so he, here's this hick from the sticks that's coming in in this uh, camel hair garment that's cinched up. And his name is Elijah, which means the Lord is my God. And so he's a very bold um, prophet. And his message was, the Lord is my God. So his, his message was Elijah. So he's like, my name is Elijah, which means the Lord is my God. And here's the message I have. The Lord's my God. He, he's legit. He's real. And I'm not afraid of you. And so that's the message that he was able to give. First Kings chapter 17 and verse one, he goes to confront the wicked king. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So what's happening here is Elijah is drawing uh, uh, very boldly a line in the sand. And, and what he's telling them is we're going to have a little showdown and it's going to uh, peak in a, a, a week or two. But there's going to be a showdown to determine who is the legitimate God and who's a fake because you need to know which God has power and which gods are powerless. And so uh, Baal was a God of fertility. And so they're like, okay, if you're going to bring fertility to the people and bring fertility to the land, uh, we're going to see what the land looks like with your God in charge, because uh, the God I serve, the true God is going to shut things down. And so can the real God please stand up and move forward. And so you can see what's starting to happen. And so the first consequence of the people finally moving Jehovah to the sidelines is the drought going throughout the land. And so it bails this God of fertility, let him bring forth the rain. So for the time being, the people of Israel uh, not only dealt with extensive drought and famine, but they also had God's representative, Elijah, left town as well. And so they got to experience what life was like without God and without God's voice in the land. And so I, I always think of it like as uh, it's a wonderful life. And well, if you've seen that old classic movie, uh, what happens to the town after uh, it, as if the, the main character if his life hadn't been lived, what would happen to the little town of Bedford Falls? You guys throw in some things that you remember from the movie.
Okay, this is pretty hard. I'm, I'm guessing they'll all crop up in about three minutes. But if you remember, uh, he gets to see what's happening and Bedford Falls is, is now Pottersville. And you start to see some of the, uh, you know, old man Potter uh, building the, the slum houses for the people and, and how uh, Bedford Falls is no longer this wonderful bedroom community where to live. But instead, uh, it, okay, Jim Nord says I'm not that old. I, he's he's a lot older than I am, but Amy's older than that. Uh, yeah, Brian Tinsley says Pottersville, and Donna Elliott said turns into awful town. Honky Tonks, uh, Diane Newhouse, poor town management. There were lots of bars. Uh, the pharmacist goes to jail. Yeah. All right. Laura Dodd says, I can't remember. You need to go back and see it. It's every it's every year at Christmas time. Yeah, Chad Redwine says greed. So everything falls apart. And so um, what they're gonna do is uh it's like God's representative, Elijah, says, if you don't want God in your life, uh you're gonna get to experience what life is like without God's blessing. And I, I got to thinking about what's going on right now. Um, and as we go through this pandemic, we start seeing uh, that life has been interrupted. And we don't know how long it's going to be. If it's just a few months, uh, some say a year and a half uh, till they develop a vaccine, we really won't be able to go back to life as normal. A lot of business leaders and religious leaders are saying, we're not going to go back to the life before the virus that church and work and school and socializing, everything's going to look different on the other side. And everyone's trying to get a crystal ball to see what that looks like. But during this time, what we're seeing is uh, without the ability uh, to have some of our crutches, so to speak, some of our uh, things that we lean on, like sports and entertainment, e even the joy of going to work, uh, that we're starting to see people kind of peel out in a couple of different directions. And these are uh, just kind of some different data points, but uh, some of the half-price bookstores, uh, some of the religious uh, books that have been sitting there for years are suddenly getting cleared out uh, and so people are, are looking to God during this difficult time. But then there's also uh, a swing in the opposite direction. Um, they said online pornography and uh, gambling sites. Of course, they're having a hard time finding any sporting events to gamble on. Uh, but in all kinds of different vices, people are, are turning to those because they don't have their normal things to help them through and life is also forcing them to sit back and, and kind of ask some, some very tough questions. So uh, Harriet says, basically our influence affects other people even when we don't realize how we influence others. Yep, that's very true. Uh, Sandra says, there's no sports. Yep, that's true. <laughs> very good. So what, what's in the story for us? Um, one of the things that I would tell you is nations and people don't turn away from God overnight. Uh, it's a, a slow process. 
Um, I, I guess I've always thought in my mind, how do you go from David, a man after God's own heart, and then you get Ahab? Was he just a rotten egg? And yeah, he, he was. But there were some in-between steps between David, a man after God's own heart, and we we see the the full, um, I guess the the sin come to its fruition. And so there were some in-between steps. So David uh, turned over the the throne to his son Solomon, and Solomon faithfully worshipped his heavenly Father in the temple. But as you know. Uh, his many wives led him astray and having us guys all been there, uh, but his many wives led him astray. And so what Solomon started doing is to appease uh, these different marriages that he had done something to expand his kingdom. And uh, I guess for his appetites and different things, he starts building little temples outside of town. So publicly he could keep worshiping Jehovah but yet on the side, he could go and, and pay homage and even offer sacrifices and incense. And he's like, what's the big deal? If it keeps mama happy, then all of us will be happy. Uh, it's a false God. What's the big deal? But the problem is, is once Solomon kind of opened that door, if you can imagine light coming into a dark room, it slowly gets wider and wider. And that's what we see in the life of Jeroboam, his son, and of course, uh, uh, Rehoboam, his son, and then Jeroboam uh, up in the north, they take it a step uh, a step further. So 1 Kings 11 says, Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. So publicly, he's still doing the right things, but his heart is is very divided. And I think that's what we can see that that happens in individuals. And it also happens um, in the lives of uh, our, our nation and other nations. You know, one of the most tragic thing is when you see families that used to be core members of a congregation growing up, and in one generation was, uh, you know, it was the preacher or was, you know, one of the shepherds, one of the leaders. Uh, and they were involved in everything and just fully devoted to the Lord. And then that next generation down, well, they're still kind of involved and they're still, and it seems like that third generation's going to be like, okay, if it wasn't all that important to my parents, why am I keep going why am I going to continue going to church? Why am I continue putting up a, a false pretense if I'm not getting it? And so it started with Solomon not being completely devoted to the Lord. Um, and then we read in first Kings chapter 14 and verse nine, the, the Lord says to Jeroboam, Hey, I allowed you to go onto this throne here in Israel and, and look how you've repaid that. He told uh, Jeroboam, you've done more evil than all those who live before you. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made out of metal, and you have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. So we'll see that for generations, this thing starts to happen. Um, so let's look at a couple of our comments. 
Um, Harriet says, this is a time when we need to uh, need a great series on learning communication. There you go. Uh, Roxanne says she's rotten, whatever that means. Uh, Donna Elliott says, great point. Uh, Harriet says, uh, Don wants me to add that slow process is used to condition people like TV and the use of a uh, couple sleeping in separate beds, no preventing. I, I, I'm guessing you're referring to when I love Lucy, when Ricky and Lucy uh, had separate beds and, and how things continue to change a little bit at a time. So Jeroboam didn't do away with God altogether. He still interacted with the prophets of God. Uh, but he started a process of diminishing the role of the Lord against his, amongst his people. So if God decreases, then Jeroboam and his administration, people will look to that and then also to these other gods. And other things can increase. So if, if David was God totally, Solomon was God mostly, and Jeroboam followed with God sporadically. And then Ahab becomes that next step in the progression, doing away with the Lord altogether. So that's where I'm going to stop tonight in our study. But we got time for a couple of comments. Uh, was it as shocking to you to read that God's people once they gotten over into the promised land, even though the Lord cautioned them this would happen, that they totally turned their back on during this season, and they totally said, God, we're done with you, even though they're God's chosen people that slide into the nations. Um, here's what Amy said. Amy Siebert says, it makes it okay to go against God because all uh, all this other people are are doing it. And it it's okay. So this whole, uh, that was part of the problem when they didn't drive everyone out of Israel. They started adopting the face of the people that remained and in neighboring areas. So you no longer have the social pressure of we're just going to do what God says if you also have these other influences. Great point. Uh, Harriet says the same with the Israelites. They never seem to fall away immediately. It's always kind of a gradual thing. Uh, Sandra says his faith was desensitized as to what God wanted. And on and on it went. Soon God wasn't there at all. And Donna says, we are an impatient people. Uh, Jim Nord says, yes, after all they had been through, it's hard to understand how they could make that decision. Um, I, I, I completely agree. And I don't think that Ahab went in and rebuilt Jericho uh, so that he could have a southern fortress down there. It was far away from Israel. I think what he's trying to do is take away some of the myths and some of the uh, nostalgia and taking away some of the uh, storytelling of the people to remember what God has done. Uh, Mike uh, Turnbull says people forget so quickly 
Uh, same thing happens today. You know, one of the things that I tried to do when I was a youth minister was really get the teenagers to uh, to really, when they were on a mission trip or uh, made faith decisions, to almost set those up like the 12 stones. And we would talk about the importance of what they were experiencing and talk about how God felt among them. And so we don't forget. That's why I think it's important that when we're at home, that we're telling stories around our dinner tables. And, and, and not just funny stories about things that happen within our family, uh, but also we're sharing faith stories and times uh, retelling when God was among us. Uh, Diane Newhouse said the Israelites did it right after crossing the sea. Absolutely. Setting up these signposts. Uh, Sharon Stevens says people rely on God in times of trouble, but when these things get better, they rely on themselves. Absolutely. That's why I'm hoping during this time of a pandemic that it causes some people to say, I can't do it myself. I'm powerless over this and really turn to the Lord. That, that's a great point. Alicia says the Israelites went through cycles of sin, even in the wilderness, but now they received the promise of the promised land. So they felt like they got what they deserved and move on with their own desires. Yep. Um, <laughs> Jim North says, especially at your age. Okay, we need to be careful at our age. Um, no, I, I encourage us to, to just be conscious that there are forces like Ahab among us that are doing their best to take down uh, Ten Commandments, and, and but really try to remove God and discussions about him from the, the public marketplace and from public spheres of conversation. And so we just need to be to realize there's a concerted effort and the freedoms and expression and things that we grew up with aren't necessarily the same world that our kids grew up with. Joe, Joe Pierce agrees with me. She said, we need more God talk and relate how God did works in our lives. That's why uh, the power of testimonial is, is so important. So these are some great comments. I encourage you to keep reading and first Kings chapter uh, 16 and keep reading through 17 and on. And we'll see kind of how this showdown continues. And these people that are kind of caught between uh, what Elijah is telling them and what um, they're getting from um, Ahab and Jezebel and what's coming out of the capital city. Um, they're eventually going to have to go in and, and make a choice. Roxanne says, I think even now we have to be on guard against Satan influencing us uh, now that we are kept apart. Okay, so Roxanne, you don't know it, but you just blew up my, my fourth lesson in this series where we talk about isolation uh, tends to hurt us. And that becomes something that Satan uses as a discouragement. So you're way ahead. So gold star for you. So hopefully this has been beneficial uh, and we will continue on. Uh, if you also have time this week, we're starting a new series 
on God's transformative powers in the book of Ephesians. And some scholars, believe it or not, say it's the greatest work of Paul. Others say Romans, some say Philippians, uh, but there's definitely some power in the first few chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. So uh, let's keep studying. Let's keep encouraging each other and finding new ways to do this. I'm going to pray over us. Father, we do hope that this time where we are away from each other is not a source of discouragement, but it can be an encouragement, Lord. Help us to learn how to interact with each other in new ways. Lord, help us to um, use this time wisely with our families. Help us to use this time wisely in our time with our Heavenly Father. Lord, some of the disciplines that we know draw us into a tighter relationship with you, we our excuse so often has been, well, I, I just don't have time to do that. Well, now we do. And Lord, I, I pray we'll take advantage of this time to spend more time in your word, spend more time in prayer and fasting and doing things that will connect us. Lord, help us to be aware of what's happening around us. Help us to be aware of agendas that are contrary to your agenda. And Lord, help us to have the wisdom to say, as for me and my household, we're going to do something different. Lord, help us to know when to take a stand. Help us to know how to influence others and to make a difference in the community around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. And we'll meet here, I guess, same bat time, same bat channel. So we'll see you next week. We'll move into 1 Kings chapter 17.